will join me in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, we continue in our series through Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. This morning we will find ourselves in verses 11 through 14. Our key words for our worshipers in training are hope, inheritance, and spirit. Now I wonder how much you've thought about the fact that what you think in your life about the ultimate future will affect you. Have you ever considered that? Every day your life is affected by what you think about the future. What you believe is going to happen when you die. That will affect you. In fact, you, you may actually believe that when you die, you will go to heaven and meet Jesus face to face, but how you live each and every day really reveals whether or not you believe that in your heart. The English novelist Somerset uh, Magum wrote a book called the, the Summing Up, and he writes this, astronomers tell us at long last the universe will attain the final stage of equilibrium when nothing more can happen. Eons and eons before that, human life will have disappeared. Is it possible to suppose that it will matter that we ever existed? We will have been a chapter in the history of the universe, as pointless as the chapter about the strange monsters that inhabited the primeval earth. Once you know the existence of God and survival after life is too doubtful to believe in, then if death ends everything, if I have neither to hope for good nor to fear evil, I must ask myself, now how must I live? The answer is plain, but so unpalatable that most will not face it. There is no meaning for life, and thus life has no meaning. In another one of his works called of human bondage, there's a character named Philip Carey who sort of embodies this idea about life and the end of life. And Carey rejects any faith of God pretty early on in his life. So he believes that when you die, you rot, and eventually the sun, uh, the sun will die and all of, the, uh, all of human life will go away, and eventually no one will remember anything that has happened Whether you lived a good life or a cruel life, ultimately, none of that makes any difference at all. So so Carrie, as a young man, believed that after death, he had neither hope for good nor for evil. After death, there was nothing. And one day, the story goes that he's sitting on a park bench in London, and he has a revelation. And this is written of him. He suddenly realized there was no meaning in life. Man, by living, served no end. Life was insignificant, death was without consequence, and to Philip it seemed that at last the burden of any responsibility was taken away from him, and for the first time he was utterly free. But then, two sentences later, it is said that he realized he could never be truly happy. And it all goes back to what Malcolm wrote in the first place. People who don't believe there's anything in the ultimate future and think that when you die, you simply rot in the ground and nothing you do will ultimately make a difference because humankind on the whole will just pass away into the dust. People who think that way have to deal with the implications of their ideas. 
And the majority of them are unwilling to come face to face with their ideas because, as Malcolm writes, they are unpalatable. Here's a guy, Philip Carey, who for many years believed the ultimate future was nothingness. It was meaningless. But it didn't really sink into how he should live. And then he realized on a park bench what that means. It means I can live any way I can get away with. There's no such thing as right and wrong. All this talk about love and wrong and right and cruelty and justice and injustice is all just a bunch of bunk. I can live any way I want to live. I'm completely free. Anything I could do, I can get away with. I can do it. But of course, it also means I will never be happy. Do you you see what he's saying? You know, the average American really has no belief in an ultimate future. Particularly as it relates relates to Christian belief. They say things like, I don't know if God exists. I kind of just think that when you die, that's it. If there is an afterlife, I'll go to heaven because I'm a good person. But I just believe in life now and here. You only live once. So just do what feels right and whatever you need to do to get through each day. Just follow your heart and I guess we'll find out one day. But nobody really knows. Have you heard that kind of thinking from someone before? But Somerset Malgam's point is that even if in your head you don't admit the absolute inconsistency of saying such a thing? Even if intellectually you refuse to see how completely inconsistent and how wrong and how silly that is to say, the reality of what you believe about the ultimate future will penetrate you and will affect how you live every single day of your life. And we see it in our culture every single day. It infiltrates you. It gets into your heart. There will be weariness and meaninglessness that will creep into every aspect of your life, if that's how you think, and you won't be able to answer anything that comes to you. Nothing pays up to the promises that are offered by it. Nothing satisfies in the way it's supposed to. Nothing brings about the joy you're hoping for. Why? Because you have no hope. Because it means nothing. And we were created as hope-based creatures. And what we believe about what lies ahead determines how we will live our lives right here and right now. What are we hoping in? As we look to our text this morning in Ephesians 1, we see Paul pointing to the only source of true hope. And it's out of a firm conviction that there is something great and beautiful and marvelous that awaits us after this life. If you're a Christian, you possess something that comes, not with a 10-year warranty or even a lifetime warranty. It comes with an eternal, everlasting guarantee. God has filled his word with promises. Everywhere you turn in the Bible, you find the promises of God. And you know, the promises of God are for everyone who is in Jesus Christ. And of course, all of us know people who will make promises and not keep them. And if you're honest, you would admit that you've made promises that you did not keep. We're right in the middle of an election cycle right now. We don't need to 
Have anyone tell us people aren't going to make, or they're going to make promises they won't keep. It happens all the time. But we know the one who's made promises who has never once broken them. Never. And that's the great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. And the specific promise that God makes here in our text this morning is such that we have hope, we have reason to live, we have meaning in life because life after death gives us even more meaning than what we have here and now. The reality of life with Christ is not so, is not unpalatable. So, we can't even fathom and contemplate all that that means, but, but, but quite the contrary, we can think that Christ is so beautiful and so life-giving, and the more we contemplate Christ and the more we contemplate all that he is and all that he has done, the more hope that we have, the greater our assurance, because we know that what God has promised, God will bring to pass. So we continue looking at what we've identified in Paul's lengthy sentence here. It began, remember, back in verse 3, and he's working all the way through verse 14. Remember, in verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he began to explain what all of those blessings are. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined destined us for adoption, all to the praise of his glory. And then verse 7, we saw he's given us redemption through his blood. He's granted us forgiveness for our sins according to the riches of his grace. Verse 8, he lavishes upon us wisdom and insight. He even makes known to us his secret will. And all of these things, all of heaven and earth is ultimately going to be brought into this great and harmonious union with Jesus Christ forever and ever. And it's, it's no wonder that, that Paul is so full of praise through all of this that he can't, even, he can't even stop a sentence. He's just piling on the blessings and he's, he's, he's got no place to end, so he just keeps going. I imagine him writing as if he were a little child trying to tell you a story that they're very excited about. And, they, and then, and then, and then, and, and he doesn't even stop to take a breath. No breaks, just plowing straight through everything because he's so excited about what God has done from before the foundation of the world to right now as he's redeeming and forgiving and setting free into the future as it all comes together in this great and harmonious union. That's what verses 3 through 14 are. And so as we finish this great stream of praise this morning, we're given this great foundation of hope and assurance that all that God has promised will come to pass. So let's read together. You can find the text on page 976 in the blue ESV Bibles if you're using those. We're looking at verses 11 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Our first observation this morning is that Christ is the foundation of our inheritance. Right in the outset of verse 11, Paul identifies that it is Christ that we, from whom we have obtained an inheritance. Remember, this is, this is a statement in the midst of this long sentence. So the phrase, in him, modifies in him back in verse 10, which looks back to Jesus in verse 9. So you see who he's talking about. All that to say, grammatically, Paul is referencing Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been given an inheritance. And the simple question is, what is that inheritance? Well, there's actually two ways that this can be understood grammatically. And if you look at various English translations, you find that there's really this struggle with how to interpret it because it can be understood in two different ways, and both of them are correct grammatically and theologically. It could be that Paul is saying that Christ has inherited us as his possession. And from what we saw a few weeks ago, we see that that's a possibility. Remember, we saw that As God is electing his people, he's doing so, the Father, as a means to give to the Son a great inheritance of his own upon the completion of his covenant obligations. And so we become Christ's inheritance. But this could also mean that Christ is our inheritance. And I I think... This is more fitting with the context of what's being said here, that we inherit Christ. That's how the ESV renders that. We have obtained an inheritance, and, and perhaps, perhaps we don't need to make a big issue of this because both of those things are true. I am Christ's, and he is mine. But I do believe Paul's saying in this context, we inherit Christ. But that still begs another question. What about Christ or what in Christ do we inherit? And I think we can sum all of this up by saying we inherit all the promises of God when we are in Christ. So Paul writes here, starting in verse 11, You were predestined by the Father to live to the glory of Christ. And when you heard the gospel... You believed and you were saved. And in doing so, you inherited Christ. And when you inherited Christ, you inherited all of the promises that go along with him. And all of those promises are of God. Where do I get that? Mainly from Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. For the, all the promises of God find their yes. Where? In Christ. That is why... It is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So that tells me when I get Christ in my salvation, I get the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And the answer to all of his promises is yes. And the response of all of God's people is amen. That's our inheritance. So what do you want? Peace? 
Love, grace, wisdom, eternal life, joy, victory, strength, guidance, power, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, gifts of the Spirit. How about trouble, pain, suffering, fellowship with the Trinity, instruction from God's Word, truth, spiritual discernment, heaven, eternal riches, All of these things and many, many more things are promised by God so that when you become a Christian, you are made one with Jesus Christ. And when you are united with Jesus Christ, you get everything that the Father gives to him because we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So we are inheritors of all the promises. Just think about that. You and I have been adopted. We saw that earlier in this lengthy sentence of Paul's. And by our adoption, we inherit all the blessings that Christ, our elder brother, inherits. And so all the promises of God come to us in Christ because we too are the sons of God. So how does that happen? Paul tells us. Actually, it's fascinating here. We, we get both aspects here of this issue of salvation as it pertains to God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in verses 11 through 13. Look at what he says. He says, You were predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Is God 100% completely and totally sovereign over everything to include your salvation? Well, that's what the text says, isn't it? That's the argument he's building on from earlier in verses 4 and 5. But notice also, look at verse 12. We who were the first to hope in Christ. Who's he talking about there? Right there, he's talking about those who were Jews who are now Christians. We who were the first to hope in Christ. And then in verse 13, he says, in him you also. Who's you? He's talking to the Gentiles now. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. Okay, so what's going on here? That's man's responsibility. And many people want to pit these two things against one another. But here we see this great tension that we must hold in our understanding of man's salvation. Is God sovereign over our salvation? Yes. He predestined us according to the counsel of his will. That's what the scriptures said very plainly. Is man responsible to have faith in Christ? Yes, and he must believe, and believing in Christ, he will be brought to repentance. You see, God uses a means to bring about the salvation of mankind. Verse 13 should be reminding you of that means, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Do you see that? He writes, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So you see, must, what must man do? What does man need to do? He must believe. How all of that works together is for another time. But I, I want to point us to the fact that the Bible doesn't shy away from creating this tension It's there and we must be comfortable for that uh, tension to be there and not try to resolve all of that. I think he gives us an answer later in in chapter 2 and we'll see that when we get there. Is God sovereign over our salvation? Yes. 
Are we responsible to believe on Christ and repent of our sins and trust in him upon hearing the gospel? Yes. Let's be comfortable with that. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what God is calling you to do, to have faith in him. Put your trust and your hope in him, and he will not turn you away. The longing of every human heart, whether a person wants to admit it or not, is that they're seeking satisfaction and joy and peace and assurance that what they're doing matters. But if you're outside of Christ, you are looking and longing in all the wrong places. Only the one who has created all things to include you can bring about all that you need to find all that you're looking for. And so the call on your life is to repent of your sin and to trust in Christ. He wants you to do that. He calls you to do that. And there is no greater peace than knowing Jesus Christ. And when we're in Christ, we have an inheritance. And that inheritance is a yes to all the promises of God And we are predestined to this faith. We are believing in Christ. We have been called to him. And in this, we saw before, we have redemption and forgiveness and wisdom and insight. Do you see how all of this truly is an inheritance of hope? Doesn't that give you hope? Now, we're not talking about our general way of using hope where we say, I hope such and such will happen like this sort of longing for something to maybe come to pass. No, in biblical usage, it's actually quite different. It's, it's nearly the opposite of that definition. A good example of that is Hebrews 11. The writer says, this is what faith is. Faith is an assurance of things hoped for. You see, it's assurance. I have, I have hope. I have an assurance. I have certainty. I have confidence. That's what hope means in biblical language. Biblical hope is living now in a way that's completely changed because of what you know will happen in the future. That's hope, being certain about a future. Something that's not here yet, but being affected by it now. So we don't have to live life like Philip Carey, I told you about before, assuming there's nothing that matters. There's nothing to look forward to. No, it's quite the opposite. We have every reason to live. We have every bit of purpose defined for us because we are in union with Christ who has designed all things to his great ends and it all results in our greatest good. But Christian hope really does have to do with the future state and not the immediate And so if you understand what's guaranteed, out there is ultimate good, great wisdom, everything turning out for good, getting all the things you've ever wanted in life in your heart ultimately, but not immediately, that means that Christians aren't expecting an easy life. That means you're you're patient when you don't have an easy life. And you know what? You won't have an easy life. You know, so often we play the if-only game. If only I didn't have bills to pay. If only I made more money. If only my kids behaved more like I wanted them to. If only I liked my job. If only I could play golf every day. 
If only our pastor would stop saying, if only. Christian hope should change all of that because we realize that things aren't going to be fixed here and now. Things aren't going to be how they were in the garden just yet. We have hope that looks ahead and transcends all of our cultural circumstances because we realize that at the full consummation of all things, God's promises and purposes for which he has created us will be a possession that we will behold in its fullness. You see, people who do not have an understanding of Christian hope are always freaked out when something goes wrong because they don't understand hope. Everything is a tragedy. Everything is the end of the world. Political problems, economic problems, family problems. They're all huge, catastrophic, life-changing problems that get everyone worked up and distressed and on medication and in therapy because there's no sense of hope and purpose in the long run. But Christian hope is an ultimate future. And it affects the way that we live right here and right now. And if you truly believe in an ultimate future of peace with God, it really should be evidence showing in everything you do today. How you live, how you talk, how you make decisions, how everything around you is handled when it comes to you. And that's the question we all have to ask ourselves. Does it? Does my hope in Christ and a future full receiving of the inheritance of Christ, does it affect how I live today? Well, how can we have such hope? How can we have such assurance? Because God always and forever has proven himself faithful to fulfill his promises. And as for us, we have a guarantee. And that's our second observation this morning. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. You know, we like to have guarantees on things, don't we? When we buy something new, we appreciate that there's some kind of guarantee that it's going to work or else it will be fixed by the seller at their expense. It's why we buy warranties on cars and appliances. It's one of the great things about saddleback leather. You have a hundred year warranty on those things. But while we appreciate that we have these guarantees, it's not to say that the company who made those things isn't going to tank one day. They might go under, and then who's going to fix it? There's no company, no person on this earth that can guarantee everything that they do and sell to you or give to you that no matter what, in 5, 10, 20, 100 years, that they will be around to be able to make it right. But in God, we have an absolute guarantee that will not end. As a result of having heard and believed the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives to seal us with the guarantee of our inheritance. Notice at the end of verse 13, Paul says, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When was he promised? Remember Jesus told the disciples in John 14, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be in you. 
And again, the end of Luke 24, Jesus said, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So we know from the gospel account that Jesus promises the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, a helper who will dwell within us. And so while we're here on this earth, we still have sin that affects our lives. We still have the world, the flesh, and the devil to deal with. And since we haven't yet gone to heaven in our glorified state, we aren't yet enjoying the fullness of our inheritance that is already ours. Why? Because part of that inheritance is having glorified bodies and sinless lives, dwelling with Jesus forever and ever. So to remind us of what we have, to assure us that it will come to pass, we have the Holy Spirit. And you know as well as I do, if we didn't have the Holy Spirit, we would have zero guarantee of our inheritance. Because without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't continue walking with God. You wouldn't continue in faith. You would completely reject him and walk away. And so we are saved by God, but just as beautiful is that we are kept by God. Jesus said so in John six thirty nine. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. That is part of your inheritance. Jesus has assured you that you will not be lost because it is the will of God that you be kept. And Jesus tells us we can continue to walk with him and he will continue to be his, uh, we will continue to be his because we have a helper who is the promised Holy Spirit who dwells within his children as a seal. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says. That's the language he uses. What does that mean? There are basically four ways that the word seal is commonly used. And all of them are helpful to our understanding of what Paul's getting at here. Very quickly, here's what they are. The first is that kings and princes used a seal as a sign of security. So when something was sealed, only the king or prince or someone of higher authority could break that seal. So if a letter was written by a prince to a king, only the king could open it. So for example, remember Jesus' tomb when they rolled the stone in front of it? It was sealed with the emblem of Rome. The governing authorities sealed the tomb as an indication that it must stay shut unless the Roman government or someone of higher authority were to open it. Well, at that time, who had greater authority than the Roman government? Only God. Only God. And that's exactly what happened. God broke the seal. So what's that saying about us if we're sealed in the Holy Spirit in that way? You are sealed with the Holy Spirit so you are secure and no one can ever do anything with regard to your inheritance because nobody has an authority higher than Almighty God. You are sealed by God, and no one can break that seal. Secondly, seals were often signs of authenticity. Every authority had their own symbol, and that symbol was a signet ring. It was dipped in wax, and that hot wax was pressed into whatever was being sealed to show that it really was from who it was said to be from. So if a king wrote a letter, and it was to you, and after it had traveled many miles across land by a messenger, 
you wanted that authenticity. You wanted to know for sure that it was from the king, and so you would look at the seal. So for the believer, the Holy Spirit is a sign of authenticity, that we really do belong to God. And how do we see that seal? It's what we looked at in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. We will only have the fruit of the Spirit if the Holy Spirit is within us which is a sign of authenticity. That is our seal of authenticity. Thirdly, seals were signs of completed transactions. So a contract would be drawn up. It would be signed by two parties. It would be sealed to indicate that it was official, that it was complete. Today we use lawyers and courts to file uh, all the paperwork and the courthouses and all that sort of thing deals with that. But in the sense we're doing those things, we're sealing the, the transaction. So, with God, the believer is not in the process of being saved. Our salvation in Christ is a completed, final transaction. There is nothing left to be done in terms of our obtaining salvation, which in turn guarantees our inheritance. We are sealed with a seal that shows we are now and forever belonging to God. Lastly, a seal was a sign of authority. Whatever was sealed was sealed by one who had authority. And so if it was a letter, the words of the letter were authoritative. As for you, as a child of God, when you speak on behalf of God, you speak with all of his authority behind you, so long as you're speaking the truth in accordance with his word. So for example, if you're sharing the gospel with someone You are doing so, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, as an ambassador of Christ Jesus. What do ambassadors do? They speak on behalf of their ruling, governing authority. And so all of the authority of that government is behind them as they speak. Well, you have the seal of the Holy Spirit. And as such, you are an ambassador. And when you speak the truth of God... You speak with all the authority of God in your court. And Paul tells us we are sealed. We are sealed in these ways. We are are sealed so that we are secure. We are sealed to show we are authentic. We are sealed to show that we have a complete transaction in our salvation. We are sealed with all the authority of God. You know, some people want to debate whether or not it's possible for Christians to lose their salvation. And quite honestly, I don't even know why that's a question. But here's what the Bible teaches, and passages like this make it all the more clear to us. The reality is that were it not God who saved us, who also keeps us, we would never be able to preserve our salvation. If you are truly a child of God, you will never be lost again because you have the promise of God that when you become his child, when you believe in Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit has sealed your soul and has marked you indelibly as a child of God. If you've lost your salvation, you were never a Christian to begin with. Any theology that leaves you wondering day by day whether or not you're actually a Christian still is no theology of hope. 
Where's the hope in that? No, I have confidence. Remember Paul said in verse 12, we hope in Christ. We have confidence, assurance. We have confidence that we will be brought to enjoy the full inheritance of our salvation because we are kept by God. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. He is our guarantee and our God is a covenant-keeping God that keeps covenant to a thousand generations. And you see how Paul says it in verse 14, until, until when? Until we acquire possession of it. Isn't that great? Very quickly, why? Why is all this happening? What is the purpose of all that he's written from verse 3 to 14? It's this. The glory of God is the ultimate purpose of our inheritance. That great day is coming when all sin and evil and death will be completely and finally destroyed forever and the devil will be cast into the everlasting lake of fire. There will be a new heavens and a new earth and perfect harmony without chaos. This is a promise that we are given. We can have confidence. We can have hope that it will come to pass. And it's all for what? For the glory of God. Paul said it in verse 6. We see it in verse 12. We see it in verse 14. All that we've seen, everything we've looked at in verses 3 through 14, Paul shows us it's all to the praise of his glory. Do not make this about you because you're saved, that it's about my election, that it's about my salvation. Why? Why has God saved you? To the praise of his glorious grace, that he would receive all the glory, that he would receive all the credit. It's for his sake. And you, child of God, are privileged to be a part of that. The essence of our place in this world as Christians is that we have seen but a foretaste of our inheritance that is reserved for us by God. Anyone who gets a glimpse of such a thing will ride very lightly through this life and all of our affairs here and now. What we hope in will be revealed. And we will show that our affections are set on things above, not on things of this earth. And everyone else who has done the same, everyone else who also hopes in Christ and our fellow heirs with Jesus, will be able to look at the circumstances of this life and say, it's not that big of a deal. You know, when Paul recounted everything that he went through in this life, all of the trials he endured, all the times he was beaten and left for dead and persecuted and driven out of town and shipwrecked and bitten by snakes and imprisoned falsely. All of these things, he says, I've gone through all this, but you know what? It's a slight momentary affliction compared to the everlasting greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's no big deal. All of our trials, all that we face in our circumstances of this life, we have a great hope awaiting us. Are we hoping in Christ? How does it show in our day-to-day lives? John Newton wrote these wonderful words, Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure none but Zion's children know. Oh, the joy of being among the redeemed of God. The joy of knowing 
that though we may be stripped of everything here and now, our final inheritance is guaranteed, it is safe, it is sure, and we can have absolute confidence in it. We have an inheritance of hope. It will be forever ours and no one can take it away because it is sealed by God the Holy Spirit all to the glory of God. Do you have a stake in this great inheritance? If you are in Christ, it is yours. It is for all who are in Christ. It is for all who hope in him.